Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast entitled The New Abnormal. It is the 15th of November. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Seamus Lyons and from Hong Kong, Thomas Fogel. As this extraordinary year draws towards a close, records for extreme performance have continued to be smashed by equity, bond and currency markets. Unusually, markets have moved in phase with each other so that an everything route is then followed by an everything rally. It's all down to the central banks and their response to runaway inflation. So should we now be viewing these market moves as the new abnormal? Today, we will explore what have been described as uncharted waters in financial markets and look at how we attempt to navigate through to our tactical asset allocation. Seamus, if you could set the scene for us, financial markets seem to have got through the last month or so more comfortably. Hi, Lorna. Yeah, since our last panel update, probably a month or so ago, we've definitely enjoyed a more benign period for markets. Why? Well, probably for the most part, hopes have grown for less hawkish monetary policy from central banks in light of what is expected to be a weakening global economy. So this, this is often referred to as a pivot by the Fed or other central banks, so a pivot away from their current interest rate tightening cycles. So this market view has now helped most equity markets deliver pretty strong returns since uh, the start of October and even now into November as well. And this is actually despite some pretty aggressive sell-offs in certain parts of the market, like the U.S. tech sector. I've uh, seen a lot of revenue growth forecasts that have been downgraded in the recent earnings cycle, particularly amongst the FANGs. We've seen a few stumbles there from some of the big names, so it's not all been plain sailing. In other areas, we've had the recent October inflation print. This positively surprised significantly, so it's indicating that inflation is now slowing quicker than expected. Actually, on the day itself, when this figure came out, you had a 7% bounce in the Nasdaq stock market, so taken very well by the markets. This, as well as impacted bond yields, you know, they've been going through a bit of a shaky period, but uh, since this figure came out, yields have been falling, and so prices have been rising, as now investors are, again, growing more confident that inflation is beginning to come under control. So the U.S. 10-year bond yield is now back below 4%. Again, it was close to 4.5% not that long ago. And then other bond markets like the corporates, uh, investment grade, high yield, they've also seen their credit spreads tighten as we've got a pretty broad risk on rally in the recent weeks. You know, there's been a few other trends as well, which have begun to reverse. So the dollar, very, very strong for most of this year. We've seen a bit of a pause there. Um, actually, you know, it had gone below parity against the euro. Now it's back up above parity. So we've seen some weakness there. So, yeah, it's been a pretty interesting couple of weeks for markets. It certainly has. There is an old saying that inflation goes up like a rocket and down like a feather. Could this prove to be the case once again, though? <laughs> I've actually not heard that one before. But um, then again, a lot of sayings about inflation, they've not been used in recent years because, you know, we just haven't had an environment like this for about 40 years or more, you know, where we have very, very high inflation. So firstly, what is the story with inflation? The US this year, it reached, I think it's about 8.8% 8 .8 at its peak, you know, just a few months ago. More recently, it's, it's moderated slightly. Now it's, it's running about 7.7%. But in Europe, they're still in double-digit inflation and in other economies as well. It's a very similar picture. So inflation is rampant. So there's a real sense of urgency in the central banks and their behavior in trying to get this situation under control as quickly as they can. This is because the longer inflation stays high, the more ingrained it becomes in people's minds and the more used to get to paying higher prices and also then in turn demanding larger pay increases from their employers at the same time. 
So this, this phenomenon is often captured by people's future inflation expectations. And central banks need to keep these remain anchored or low because otherwise the battle to get inflation out of the negative spiral becomes even more difficult. So yes, in many senses, it is indeed like a feather how slowly inflation can come down. This is why we've seen some very big interest rate increases across the globe from central banks. So in the US, for instance, we've had four consecutive rises of more than 75 basis points. The expected terminal rate that the Fed funds gets to at some point is, is going to be around 5%. Uh, so the Fed is really indicating that they want to get this under control and they, they will keep rates at this level then as well, as long as necessary until inflation comes under control. Yes, Jay Powell at the Fed seemed very determined to get that message higher for longer across. We saw rising rates knock on to volatility in US Treasury bond yields, as you've described. But why does a sharp move in the yield of the 10-year Treasury matter so much to financial markets? Yeah, good question. It's, it's important for many reasons. So government bond yields, they typically set the rate at which banks, corporates or, or any other borrowers, it's the rate that they need to borrow at. So the higher this rate is, the more expensive it is for them to borrow. And this obviously has a dampening effect on economic growth and demand. U.S. Treasury yields, they also still establish the risk-free rate for dollar finance globally. So, you know, fixed income asset classes tend to be priced off this rate uh, at an appropriate kind of risk premium or a credit spread above this risk-free rate. So, you know, there's a real international impact to this as well. Another reason actually as well, and one that's been very prominent this year is that's used as a discount rate in pricing securities. So pricing equities, for example, you know, it's one of the key reasons that growth stocks have underperformed this year and for a lot of last year as well. So, you know, using a higher discount rate to discount the future earnings of these growth companies back to their present value, this results in a lower value for these companies and hence one of the reasons that they've underperformed other parts of the market. So for many reasons, you know, the yields in U.S. Treasuries are very, very important. And this is why the Fed, you know, they're doing their best to influence them where they can, because they're trying to use these yields as well in their efforts to cool demand and hence tame inflation. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. Thomas, we've commented before that there have been a very different set of drivers for the Chinese economy this year. And since we last spoke, we've seen a significant change in emphasis for China's administration. A new abnormal there, too, perhaps. Hi, Lorna. Yes, the big event was the 20th Party Congress in October. Not only was President Xi re-elected for a historical third term, but also the new members of the Politburo Standing Committee and the new Premier are now closely aligned with President Xi. While the composition of the country's new leadership was indeed a surprise to the market, there were no big changes on the policy side. The policies mentioned in his speech largely follow the same economic development goals set forth during the last party congress five years ago. As a new key focus, she mentioned safeguarding national security, which means economic policy will put further focus on technology, supply chains, the supply of energy, food and other critical inputs. As for growth, the goal remains to pursue high quality growth as opposed to just high quantity growth. The GDP growth target over the coming years is expected to be announced in the MPC in March 2023. Especially China's weight on security and self-reliance in Xi's speech can create some conflicts on the geopolitical stage, mainly between the two superpowers, China and the US. 
And the trade war between the US and China has suddenly been ramped up again with these US restrictions on tech exports to China, in particular semiconductor technology. Should we see this as an attempt to change a status quo and to put China on the back foot on trade? Indeed, uh, the announcement by the US in October of implementing export controls for US companies for critical semiconductor manufacturing tools to China is indeed quite significant. The sweeping controls extend not only to the export of semiconductor chips, but also to any advanced chips made with US equipment. These measures and the trade war overall have fundamentally changed how China leaders perceive the international environment and the competition with the US. China's policymakers could end up tolerating more cyclical weakness as they try to restructure the economy to better manage external challenges and the competition with the US. To sum up, the bill for a potential decoupling between China's and America's economy will carry a heavy cost. It will likely lead to deglobalization and it can force US partners to pick side between China and the US. Yes, that's certainly very significant. Elsewhere, though, China's persistence with the zero COVID policy must now be viewed as abnormal, certainly in contrast to other major economies. We're hearing rumours that this zero tolerance for COVID could now start to be eased. Is that likely in your view? Yes, there were some encouraging news last Friday. The National Health Commission published 20 measures to, quote, optimise the implementation of COVID policy. Some relaxations, like which persons have to go in quarantine or which areas have to go into lockdown if there is a positive case, should slightly reduce the impact of COVID on daily life. In its 20 measures, the Health Commission did also mention accelerating the development of new vaccines and speeding up the delivery of booster shots to the elderly population. Both are quite important preconditions if China is eventually going to reopen and transition to a strategy of tolerating COVID. This news is overall quite positive. It seems with the new measures, the government is trying harder to make its current approach to COVID containment work rather than shifting to a different approach, at least till spring next year. Overall, it's fair to say that any reopening, whenever it will happen, could provide a domestically driven boost to growth due to pent-up demand, just at a point where recession in the US and Eurozone economies could be providing a drag. Yes, that could be quite timely indeed. But what has been clear over this year is that interest rate differentials across major economies have created extreme moves in the currency markets. The US dollar, for example, is the second best performing asset class year to date and beaten only by oil. How has this played out for the Chinese renminbi? Yeah, not surprisingly, we also saw big movements in the CNY versus the US dollar. CNY hit its lowest point versus the dollar since 2007, sailing through the important technical mark of 7 mid of September. While the weakest level year-to-date was at 7.31 days after the party congress, the CNY recovered in the last weeks to a current level of slightly above 7. It's worth recalling the market turbulence of 2015 when China widened its trading band versus US dollar from 2% to 3%. This time the adjustments has come more gradually, but nonetheless we saw a maximal drawdown of minus 15% year-to-date reached end of October. Yes, maybe another new abnormal then. 
that the markets have had to adjust to. And there are other times when the renminbi falling to these levels could have been seen as tantamount to economic warfare in itself. True, but it's important to note while CNY was and still is weak versus the US dollar, the Chinese currency is up versus other major currencies like Japanese yen or British pound and more or less flat versus the euro. Interestingly, the CNY this year has actually held up very well when China's growth expectations have been stable or improving. From February to early March, the dollar index gained more than 4%, while the renminbi strengthened to the dollar. The same pattern appeared from late May to mid-July, when the dollar index rose by more than 6%, but CNY stayed around 7 The CNY mainly lost during the spreading mass lockdowns in April and after the disappointing economic data in August and tightening of COVID policies in September. After the strength of CNY versus dollar in recent days after positive news on the COVID and property front, it seems at least in the short term the CNY will trade mainly on the expectations for China's growth. Very useful to put that into context and thank you for that. Seamus, I spotted recently that the time-honoured investment paradigm known as the 60-40 portfolio has had its worst year since the late 1930s. Yes, this is true. Bonds and equities are typically negatively correlated. And so when equity markets are having a tough time, a portfolio's bond holdings are usually rising to help offset this and cushion the falls to a certain extent. This is certainly not the case this year. We are currently on track for the worst year on record for the US Treasury market. So this is the largest and safest bond market in the world. We're also on track for a pretty poor year for equity markets as well. And even outside of the main two asset classes, alternatives like property, commodities, gold, absolute return strategies, these are all delivering uh, negative returns as well. So, you know, all balanced funds and multi-asset funds are really struggling this year with negative returns. In many instances, these negative returns are double digits, even for the lowest profile. So it's definitely been a big issue. Why is this happening? Well, as I mentioned, bonds and equities tend to be negatively correlated and moving in opposite directions most of the time. However, there are certain periods where they perform in a similar direction. One such example is periods of very high inflation. But then again, let's look back to previous periods of very high inflation, you know, like the early 80s and 70s. We didn't actually see the kind of negative returns we're experiencing this year. So um, what's different this time around? One potential thing could be the impact of QE, quantitative easing. This is the big experiment by central banks uh, in recent years where they go out and buy bonds and artificially drive the yields lower, which helps stimulate growth in the economy. So as a result, we've seen a bull market in bonds for many years now, and you've had bonds and equities generally rising together for much of the last 10 years. So they've been very positively correlated. And you know what goes up together generally comes down together as well. And this positive correlation has continued this year as well and resulted in them both falling at the same time. But one thing I would point out is that we've probably seen outsized returns in recent years for the 60-40 portfolio. You know, this is due to bonds performing so well in recent years. So this results in, the, you know, the overall portfolio return has probably been a little bit higher than what you would normally expect it to be. So in some ways, we're just experiencing some mean reversion to a certain extent. It's just that it's very unfortunate. It's all happening in such a short period of time. Again, thank you for that context there. That was very helpful too. In the light of all this then, Seamus, what adjustments have we made to our tactical asset allocation? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, as we've kind of touched on, markets have enjoyed a benign period of late and there is growing hopes for less hawkish monetary policy as the global economy weakens somewhat. 
you know, we, we sympathise with this view to a certain extent, but I guess where we differ slightly is that we do believe that the Federal Reserve will be resolute in maintaining their tightening approach in their efforts to bring inflation under control. You know, they've repeatedly and continuously stated in all their recent communications that interest rates will need to remain higher for longer until inflation moves below target. And this is not something that's expected to happen until late 2024 at best. You know, so as such, it's hard for us to be anything but cautious on bonds, knowing this is the environment we're in. That said, though, we have become more positive in certain areas of the bond universe, uh, for instance, investment-grade credit. So whilst the carry on this asset class has been attractive for some time, we were concerned by the potential for further spread widening in the context of a weakening economy. However, you know, as we mentioned earlier, uh, given the recent inflation print in the US, which showed inflation slowing more than expected, we sense we may experience a more stable period for bond yields in the near term. And so with this improving risk reward, we're comfortable in taking a bit more risk in the investment grade credit space, where we feel additional carry can be earned with a lower risk of capital losses as a result of spread widening. So for that reason, we've upgraded investment grade credit to an overweight. Elsewhere, though, we remain generally pretty defensive. So we maintain our underweight to equities. So whilst there are growing signs of inflation potentially moderating, the path towards looser monetary policy remains very long and quite arduous. And we think this is the way in economic activity in that meanwhile. So we stay on the way equities. Uh, we have a preference still for US and Asia over Europe. We just think Europe is going to face more issues than, than the other regions. So no major changes there. So it was probably less defensive than we were a month or so ago, but we still feel, you know, there's there's some difficult times ahead still. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna.